so we have no idea how the fight started. We were gone. Sarah and I were gone at the time. And we came home, we just knew that something had happened. And as we kind of slowly extracted the story out of our boys, four of them, Connor, who is now uh, 21, PJ, 20, Emmett, 18, and Quinn, 15. This happened like three, four years ago. Um, it was our biggest, uh, um, amongst the boys, it was our biggest brouhaha. And, you know, in, in, in preparing for this message on Cain and Abel, I thought, well, that would be a great thing to, so I went back to them, and I said, what, how did it, what happened? What caused this fight? And to this day, no one knows. We can't even remember. And, I, you know, Connor says it started out, they were just on each other's nerves right away from the morning, and PJ wouldn't put up with it. But, and, and before they knew it, it got personal, and it accelerated, and then, you know, they were no longer in control of the situation. So um, apparently there was a roundhouse thrown. At some point, they, they, they actually moved the festivities to the front yard. <laughs> PJ, uh, feistier, smaller, got Connor on his back. And Connor, being the sophisticated young man that he was, fought back with those windmill kicks. And then all of a sudden, the way Quinn explains it, it was over. Just, like, like a switch had gotten flipped, and they just walked away. And I don't think we would even have found out about it if we hadn't picked up certain clues. They, they were done. Whatever had happened, it was out of their system, and they moved on. And they don't even remember what it was about today. And, you know, siblings are complicated, aren't they? Families are complicated. And no family is more complicated than the one we're going to look at this morning in Genesis 4 of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. You know, Genesis, the word, shares a root with the word gene or genetic, and, and much of our lives are directed and perhaps set in many uh, powerful ways because of our genes that we received at the very start of our formation. And the same is true in Scripture. If you look at the first 12 chapters of the Bible in Genesis, everything is basically there that we need to know about God and man and his plan for redemption. And then the rest of Scripture, in many ways, is just a rolling out of that story, that story being explained and becoming more true and becoming more real. But it's all there in those first 12 chapters, and even more so in the chapters of, uh, of 1 through 4. And that's why they're really, really dense. And that's why this morning we're going to look at kind of almost verse by verse uh, Genesis 4, 1 through 15, and what happens between Cain and Abel. And we're going to see if, this, if this, pass, this verse, Am I my brother's keeper, is what many people often say is really saying. So let's jump in there with Genesis 1. Obviously the context is, uh, we leave in chapter 3, uh, Adam and Eve have fallen. God um, has delivered to them the curses and says, Look, we need to bar them from Eden and from the tree of life, lest they eat it and live forever knowing good and evil. So Adam and Eve have been removed from the garden. They're starting their life outside. Um, and 
Uh, some amount of time has passed, we don't know, and verse 1 starts with at, where it says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And again, uh, names are great because they give us windows. And Cain's uh, name there actually means to acquire. Uh, Eve is saying, I got a man. I've acquired a man. And it, her excitement may have been rooted in the promise that she was given in Genesis 3.15 that from you, one of your descendants, Eve, were, is going to crush the serpent's head. So it's quite possible she was thinking, all right, the head crusher is here. He's going to take care of the serpent. He's going to undo this curse that we're under, and we're going to be able to go back to what we had. That could have been a, a large part of her excitement with her firstborn son. We're not sure. Obviously, she was a little ahead of her time, but her hope was right in the sense that it would come uh, through her descendants. A little more time passes, and verse 2 says, Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, notice it doesn't say, and she named him, because Abel means vapor. And it could very well be he had a different name, but because his life was so short, they just named him what became true of him, that he was here and gone. You know, if you look at the genealogy of those days, they've lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, according to the scriptures. And here's Abel, he's born, he's raised, he just gets to adult age, he's starting his vocation, and then he's gone. He's like a vapor. So it could be that they just are referencing what his experience was. Interesting. And then the narrative skips again, in verse 2, it says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So while the narrative follows a, 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 the pattern, it, it's a great story. It's easy to follow along. Scripture just wants to move ahead in time. So 15 or 20 years, maybe more, have taken place. The boys have grown up, and now they're contributing responsible members to the family. And their vocations should be of no surprise to us. I don't think there's anything special here. They, no doubt, kind of did what Adam was doing. Remember, um, Adam, in the curse, was said that, that God said to him, you're going to till the ground, you're going to work the soil, and um, they would have needed animals for fur, clothing, tent, uh, material, those kind of things. And, of course, agriculture and animal uh, raising are complementary, so let, we don't need to look into those or read into those too much. As for Abel keeping the flocks and Cain working the soil, again, the passage doesn't give us any more reason why this is, so let's not read into it. It could have been it's just what they defaulted to. It may have been what they liked. Um, some uh, theologians argue that Cain, would have, as a firstborn, would have done what his father did, and Abel would have gotten the less uh, sexy job because there's sheep poop. And we see that with Daniel later in Scripture, that the youngest is out taking care of the sheep. So maybe that's what's going on here. We just don't know. More time passes, and we find ourselves at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So again, here it is, our first uh, uh, instance of worship in the, in the Scripture. So we've already had some firsts. We've had the first babies born. We've had the first belly buttons. Think about it. Yeah. Um, now we have our first worship. 
And it could have been something, again, we don't know what prompted it. It could have been something Adam and Eve suggested or ordered the boys to do. Uh, it could have been something the Lord requested. We just don't know. But it's interesting to note that each of the boys worships out of their vocation. And I love this because it, it's a picture of uh, full worship, true worship. It's an echo a little bit of Romans 12 where it says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual service of worship. That worship is much more than the three songs we sang here. It's a full-on, full-heart, full-life, ongoing um, uh, event that we can do and should do that encompasses all of us, including our jobs, including our vocations. Something to note there, that that was hardwired in from the very beginning. But here in the story, we see our first distinction. It says here that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering. But in verse 4, it says, And Abel brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. So here we see detail about Abel's sacrifice that's missing in Cain. Abel not only brings the firstborn, but the fat portions. Now, the firstborn's important because those... That would have been a, an animal that had not been bred for many generations and was kind of tired and worn out and its value was kind of gone. A Abel brings an investment and sacrifices it knowing that he's going to be missing from that animal many, many uh, a animals in the future. And he also brings the fat portions. What, what's up with that? Well, the picture here is Abel has already killed the animal and he has cut out the, fat, the portions of the, of the meat and the flesh that have all the fat and marbling in them. And then in the verse, we see there, it said, the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering. So the picture there is not that God kind of steps down between Cain and Abel's sacrifice and kind of looks at Cain and looks at Abel. What's happening here is the Lord's looking at from heaven, and tradition and opinion pretty much all agree that when he looked with favor, he sent fire down from heaven to consume Abel's um, fat portions, which would have obviously set them on fire and grilled them, and, and that fat would have, have bur started burning up, and that aroma, that rich, savory aroma, would have gone up to the Lord in, in, that, in that, that pleasing sense. That's probably what happened here. But on verse 5, on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. For Cain, no look, no fire, just silence. And Cain begins to get angry. Literally, that very angry in the, in the Hebrew was, um, it, it literally set his heart on fire. So no fire outside, but a beginning of a different fire inside. And in there, internally, he was on, there was rage, and this translated into his countenance. There was no missing the, his, his disappointment, his, his, uh, his, his, his growing anger. And, and we have to wonder here, what expectation did Cain bring? When you have that much disappointment, there had to be that much expectation that something different was going to happen. So what was Cain's expectation going into the sacrifice? There must have been some sense of a, a deep pride or expectation that God would find his sacrifice acceptable and, and give him praise. So time out, time out. What's going on here? Why, why is Abel's 
uh, Abel's sacrifice so accept, accept, acceptable and Cain's not? You know, there's a lots of opinion around this verse in the sense that, well, Abel gave an animal, and this was a preview to the sacrificial lamb of Jesus, while Cain only gave produce. But keep in mind that neither would have known any of those guidelines. The Mosaic law is still thousands of years away. The Levitical uh, writings about what's acceptable and not are thousands of years away. And this was also not a sacrifice for forgiveness in any way that we understand it. This was a different kind of sacrifice. This was a different kind of worship. This was a worship uh, that was more uh, grounded in thanksgiving or thankfulness, gratitude. To Tim Keller, author and pastor Tim Keller, sees a beautiful twist in the Cain and Abel story, kind of almost a parallel to the, to the two brothers in the prodigal son story. Abel comes to his sacrifice much like that other younger brother coming home comes with no expectation that God owes him anything, and his, his heart is fully engaged, thankful for all that God gives and provides him, and so that re- is reflected in his sacrifice. His fully engaged heart is that heart of faith, and that's why Abel leads off the list in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith list. First person mentioned in that hall of faith in Hebrews 11.4 is Abel, where it says, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. His his reputation, his example, still communicates what faith, acceptable faith, looks like. So Cain, the older brother, comes on his terms. Perhaps out of duty, mere duty. Likely his gift was brought with such an expectation. I'm the good guy. I do good things. I'm the older son. I'll bring some of my produce. And his expectations were for acceptance and praise because in his mind he had already been the good son. He'd been doing his duty. And this could possibly be a sacrifice that was about crossing T's and dotting I's. We don't know. All we know, it wasn't accepted. So even if his produce was great, and even if the produce was ripe and gorgeous. It was the heart behind it that made a big difference. As Bible scholar A.W. Pink says, the severest self-denials and the most lavish gifts are of no value in God's esteem unless they're prompted by love. And that, for me, when I read that, that was a gut check for me. You know, it's it's June 22nd, 2014. It's in, in the church calendar. We're in what they call ordinary time. So how often do I come to church? and it's just ordinary time, or I give my tithe, and it's just ordinary time. You know, there's a gut check I need to make when things just become week in and week out with our faith, as they often can be. So this brings us to verses 6 and 7. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? The Lord just cracking the door open there. Mercy. Come on, Cain. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Here again is where Genesis speaks to all of us through time. There's such a timelessness to this. I I have had countless internal conversations in my head and heart just like that with God. 
when I felt so justified to do something because I was wrong. It, it makes total sense. And how often have we struggled with that conversation with the Holy Spirit? And God here is using specific poetic language that if we get it, literally, I mean, it should make the hair, of our head, uh, the hair on the back of our neck stand up. Because he's, he's, he's portraying sin as literally a crouching beast. Crouching both in its preparation to attack and that it's crouching to be concealed. And that's, man, sin does that. And let's be honest, in the short term, sin works. If it didn't, we wouldn't be so attracted to it in the short term. It does feel good. When you yell at somebody, it does relieve pressure. When you pursue things that you were not supposed to do, there is that moment where it works. But it's crouching. It's concealing in the short term. The picture God is drawing for for Cain here is like, Cain, you're being stalked by a large cat, and, and it's utterly focused, and its pure desire is to not only take you down, but tear you apart and devour you. God says to Cain, like a caring father, it's not too late. You can overcome this. Please do what's right. There's such mercy and encouragement here. But, Verse 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Once crouching sin pounces, the rest seems understandable. The progression of the heart, how it gets momentum through anger and brooding and then revenge matched to passion and the outcome seems natural. Now, I love this next verse in the sense of the Lord. The, the Lord could have busted in at any, any time now and done whatever he did, wanted to do. He would have been completely in the right. But look what he does in verse 9. Cain, where's your brother Abel? I mean, isn't it interesting that that question is almost exactly the same question that he asked Cain's father, Adam. Adam, why are you hiding? brother. He, he gave them a chance to come clean, both of them, in the garden, Adam and Eve. What, why are you hiding? And what's Adam's response? Uh, the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me. And to Eve, oh, the serpent. And to Cain, how should I know where my brother is? Am I his, am I his keeper? And literally what he's saying here, I mean, it does, an aside, it makes me wonder, had they come clean in that moment, had they said, oh, I'm undone, you know, the sin's still there, but what would the story, how maybe the story had been different? We'll never know. But it's an interesting thing to go. The, the Lord gave them that opportunity, and they rolled by it. Okay? Again, the, just the mercy of God. So this Am I my brother's keeper? Do you know what it really means in the literal translation? It's basically, what, am I his babysitter? Am I his babysitter, God? I mean, is it my job to keep track of him? Where, 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 where's that written? And that word keeper there that he used literally means like a, a, a shepherd keeps a sheep who's too dumb to keep, keep themselves. That's how disrespectful this is. 
you know, Cain's, at this time, Cain's heart is completely hard. He lies. Of course he knows where the body is. He dumped it or buried it there. And, and, and his, he's completely disrespect because he no longer cares who he's talking to. His response is actually meant to kind of put some shame back on God. A little, little jab, a little dig. And I get it. I can see why people at this point want to believe that Cain's sin was not taking care of his brother. Certainly that is sinful. That is sinful. But more, um, as tragic and awful, awful as the murder of Abel was, that's merely a symptom. That's merely a symptom. And, if, and it's not the disease. And if we focus on the symptom, we'll never get a clearer picture of the true condition of our hearts and what we need to guard ourselves from. Look, there are many, many passages in Scripture that teach us what it means to be our brother's keeper. Um, how to do it, to what extent, in, in the proper context, how we are to care for others. When I was preparing this, you know, a few jumped to my mind was, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 6 talks that we're to bear each other's burdens. But Genesis 4.9 is not one of those. Abel was a healthy, working adult. He could, he could and was caring for himself. Cain's remark here is not an indication that we're to be a, our brother's keeper in that sense. It, it was one of sarcasm and absurdity meant to defend his actions and give God a little bit of payback for not accepting his sacrifice. His remark shows the depth of the hardness of his heart. And finally, the Lord's had enough. In verse 10, the Lord says, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And what is that blood cried out for? It was crying out for justice. Lord, bring me justice. And here it comes. Verse 11 and 12. Now, Cain, you're under a curse driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. It's very interesting here, again, that the curse is an echo of the curse given to Adam, except now God doubles down. Doubles down. Where Adam would work the ground, and while it would be productive, it would always... Uh, produce alongside uh, the harvest. It would produce thorns and thistles. There would always be a harvest of frustration. And as a guy, I get that. We're always, the the world doesn't work for us guys like we want it to work. Ladies, you got your own unique curse. And so much of our lives, so much of my life, I find, is that I'm constantly trying to outwit the curse. It's there. But with Cain, he gets nothing for his work. Nothing anymore for his labor. The ground will produce no crops, and he'll have to wander and scavenge. And check out Cain's response. Cain, pure Cain. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What a response. No sense of, so sorry for what I did to Abel. I'm a murderer. Forgive me. It's like, I'm the victim. I'm still the victim. I'm still, you know, this this is too much. 
this is, Cain is thinking about Cain, and you can't stop thinking about Cain. And there's no repentance here, no sorry, only self-concern, only self-pity, which is amazing. And what does the Lord do with Cain's lack of repentance and self-concern? He shows mercy. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. We have no idea what this mark is, but it was obvious. You mess with Cain, you'll mess with me seven times more, said God. It certainly raises the question, if this is how big the Lord's mercy is for those who don't repent, what about us? What about you who do? Holy mackerel. That is huge. I don't, I don't know where you are right now. I haven't really met you or spent time with you. If there's something that you have to repent of in your life, please. Imagine the mercy waiting, God wanting to give you if you repent. Because look at what he gave to someone who had no repentance, a murderer with no repentance. And if you've already accepted God's repentance, it's, it's, it's just an opportunity for us to live out of gratitude. That gratitude would be our, our the spiritual gasoline for, for our walk with him. Simply amazing. As we close, I want to focus on one last thing, and, and this is what I believe God really wants us to hear from this passage. Not the brother keeper, but what is really the point God wants us to get from this passage. Why was Abel's sacrifice so pleasing to God? We talked about that it was of faith. We touched on that. But faith needs an object. And what was Abel's object? No doubt, again, that he had known about that promise from Genesis 3.15. You know, they're, they're pre-nomads. They're sitting around. I mean, it gets dark. Dinner's made. You're sitting around the campfire. And no doubt, they had heard many times naturally the promise that one was coming, a descent. You guys, there's going to be a descendant that comes from you guys that will crush the serpent's head, and we'll be able to go back. We'll be able to go back to that life that we, we fell from. So he knew that. And embedded in Abel's sacrifice was the trust and thankfulness that he knew to be true, and that was for him. Cain's sacrifice said the opposite. Here's my sacrifice, God. I, I, I'm impressing you, aren't I? This should impress you, shouldn't it? And it's here we need to do a gut check, a heart check. Because when we do right, when we serve the way we're supposed to, we pray when we should, we, 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 we're faithful in the things that we know we're supposed to be faithful for, and we, things don't go our way, what's our response? when we see other folks seemingly get that favor, even though maybe we know stuff or we, you know, what's our response? Do we get bitter? Do we get jealous? Do we grumble? If so, we're being Cain's. When Cain's obedience, when Cain's obedience, duty, and practice didn't earn him what he demanded, he killed Abel. So how can we be more like Abel? We look to the one who Abel's sacrifice points, his descendant. The one who also came with a sacrifice full of faith. The one who upset the Cain's of his day. The one 
they were the ones trying to press, impress God with their obedience, duty, and practice. And when the Cains of Jesus' day, the good religious folks, didn't get what they wanted, they killed the second Abel, the perfect Abel who was also the sacrifice. In Hebrews 12, remember we touched on Abel being in the Hall of Faith in Hebrew 11. But in Hebrew 12, it's, Hebrews 12, it's kind of a, a bookend to that whole passage section. And it kind of sets up two places. One that the Cains have to worry about if they don't live up. And one to the Abel's waiting to accept them. It's a beautiful picture. Let me read it for you quickly. For the Cains, it says, you've, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight of it was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you... You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. And you've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood rightly calls out for justice. All blood shed by unrighteous cries out, Avenge me, Lord. But Jesus, the second Abel, speaks a better word by saying, My blood provides justice. Think about that. Even though we killed Jesus, we did. We killed Jesus. He cries out not for justice, not for justice against us, but for justice for us. His blood speaks better by constantly reminding God, the righteous judge, that it was shed for us, constantly acquitting us. It brings justice. It satisfies justice. It brings us into the heavenly kingdom, to the joyful assembly, to God, who is righteously judging, but when seeing the blood shed for us, says not guilty, acquitted, constantly. Somehow, in some small way, Abel's sacrifice reflected that he knew this. That's why his faith is so precious to God. It's held up constantly, ongoing, timelessly as an example. Living in this truth will help us be loving, gentle Abel's. We'll be pleasing to God our lives, a savory aroma going up to him. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this picture you give us this encouragement. Thank you for Jesus, our able, our sacrifice. Lord, thank you that you are at work and we can rest in the fact that your work is done. Help us, Lord, with our lives, bring a worship to you that is a pleasing aroma because we live in light of this. Sear it into our hearts and our minds, Lord. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.